The sermon text for this morning is Acts 13, verses 1 through 4. And it's on page 921 in the Blue Bible in front of you. Acts 13, starting in verse 1. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menan, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. All right, let's pray. O oh God, our Father, you have not dealt with us according to our sins. You have not made us subjects of your wrath. Instead, you have given us Jesus. O oh Lord Jesus, through your death, we receive life, through your blood and your righteousness. And you have not left us alone. O oh Holy Spirit, comforter, convincer, you who are actively shaping us into the image of our Lord and drawing people to him. Please, Holy Spirit, don't let us be without your presence this morning. We don't want to just read about your work in a book. We want to be your workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Show us our Lord today and make us like him. In Christ's name, amen. Well, who should be a missionary? John Patton, missionary from Scotland in the 19th century, was approached by a certain Mr. Dixon, who was critical of Patton's decision to take the gospel to cannibals dwelling in the New Hebrides Islands in the South Pacific. The cannibals? You'll be eaten by cannibals. Now, this was not hyperbole. Just 19 years earlier, Two missionaries indeed in this very set of islands were eaten by cannibals, killed just minutes after going ashore. Well, Patton answers Mr. Dixon like this. Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die, living and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. Well, maybe your answer is, that guy. That guy should be a missionary. And you wouldn't be wrong. Uh, John Patton was a missionary, and he reached many for the gospel in that set of islands. And he has actually inspired many to go and take the gospel to places where it has never been heard. But today, we're not gonna talk about John Payton, we're gonna talk about Paul and Barnabas from the book of Acts. And we're gonna talk about the first missionary journey ever made to the Gentiles. So this missionary journey begins at the Christian church in Antioch, which I say somewhat tongue in cheek because Antioch is the first place where the followers of Jesus are called Christians. And they are the ones who set Paul and Barnabas apart and send them. But 
it is really the Spirit's missionary journey. And the Spirit, it is clear in the reading, thank you, Walter, is actually sending Paul and Barnabas and organizing the affair. So we're going to look at the lead-up to the journey again, and we're going to look at the journey itself. We're even going to look at the after-party when Paul and Barnabas debrief the church in Antioch. And how are we going to accomplish this? Say you. Well, there are different genres in Scripture, um, and tra- Acts can be a, a tricky book. Um, in some books of the Bible, it's not too difficult to construct a sermon off just one verse. Whereas with Acts, even a hundred verses, it's a little difficult to know how far to take things. So, like, there are prophecies, and there are healings, and there are visions, and there are jailbreaks. There are moments when God's people are living with all things in common. In fact, even in our reading, in the first verse, you see that our church in Antioch this morning names teachers and prophets as its church leaders. Are they, are they just not calling them elders yet? Because nobody has settled on the term? So you see the, the trouble that we're running into because Acts, it's a story. And so we, we, could, we could do a sermon on Acts 13 and 14 where I qualify everything that I say with maybe this or maybe that, which I actually don't mind doing, but I'm pretty convinced that wouldn't make for a good sermon. We could also, as another alternative, go to this text, Ministry Model Mining, which is to say, find some convictions that our church has and that I I share and stand by and see them in our text, and then eventually recognize that Acts isn't looking to bear the whole weight of all of those convictions, and then go elsewhere in the New Testament to fill things out. Well, there's plenty of material to do exactly that. But I fear we would never actually hear Acts 13 and 14 on its own terms. You can tell I'm not really selling the first two options, right? Well, there is a third. The third that I can think of is we can go on this missionary journey with Paul and Barnabas in the way that Luke, our human author for the book of Acts, seems to have intended that we do and read. I'm going for option three. I'm going to have some compassion on our attention spans and summarize Paul's sermon that shows up in chapter 13. So there's going to be some reprieve there. But apart from that, we are going to read the entirety of this missionary journey together. So I'm not a tyrant. There will be coffee breaks, not real coffee, but there will be coffee breaks as we go. Uh, Five of those where we'll pause and consider the thing that we just read very briefly. And then following our journey with Paul and Barnabas, there will be four observations and one encouragement. So that's that's the outline for what we're going to do. If you'd like to find it in the Bible, I know that there's no no screen behind me. The Bible's in front of you. You can find this. This journey starts on page 921. Acts 13, verse 1, page 921 in the chairs in front of you. And it starts, now there were in the church in Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, who, by the way, we know better as Paul and will be called Paul by the end of this story. Saul is his Hebrew name, Paul is his Greek name. That's what's going on. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. 
So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Coffee break number one. Three things. Now, given Paul and Barnabas' background, we're not hugely surprised that this reader is telling, that it wouldn't be a huge surprise to the reader, that is, that the Holy Spirit is calling these guys into service. Um, but it's important to note, I think, that this work is not started by their initiative. They, they aren't hatching this plan. The Holy Spirit is. Secondly, I think the Holy Spirit does not bypass the church in this matter. That also seems significant. There's nothing to say that the Holy Spirit couldn't do this, but the Holy Spirit does not do that here. And the church in Antioch obeys the Spirit and sends them out. And then in verse 4, we do see clarify that even though the church obeys and sends, it is the Spirit that is finally credited for their sending. The fact that Paul and Barnabas are willing to go is taken for granted. Continuing on. Verse 5, when they arrived in Salimus, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came to a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was the proconsul. Uh, he was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elamus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the Lord, at the teaching of the Lord. So where did Paul and Barnabas start? This is copy break number two. Well, they start in the Jewish synagogues. It's an easy access point for them, yes. Um, it's also a place where you're likely to find people with familiarity of, uh, with the scriptures, with the Old Testament scriptures. That's also true. But they're also looking for Jews and God-fearers at this point. This is going to become a missionary journey to the Gentiles, but we aren't there yet. Secondly, the magician here in this part of the story, the prophet, he is a Jew. And the proconsul who hears the word of the Lord, he is a Gentile. This dichotomy and shift is foreshadowing events to come. Continuing along, 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia, which is a different Antioch, by the way. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Hey, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. And then he preaches the sermon that I'm going to summarize for you a little bit. We'll catch him at the end of it. But in verses 17 through 37, he gives a survey of Israel's history and God's deliverance from Egypt. 
He reminds them of the rulers of Israel and the promise made concerning the offspring of King David. He references the ministry of John the Baptist as pointing to Jesus. And he points out that the resurrection and exec- the rejection, pardon me, and execution of Jesus is but a fulfillment of the scriptures that they themselves read every Sabbath. And that God raised Jesus from the dead. So let's pick up Paul's sermon now midstream. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed and from everything which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. Well, the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord, But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. And as the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirring up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went into Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Coffee break number three. Nearly a whole city. Do you get that image in your mind? Nearly a whole city come out to hear the word of the Lord. But the Jews, which to be clear, it's not all the Jewish people, I think we're meant to understand that the Jewish religious leadership here are jealous. So here we see the divide continue and deepen between the message that Paul and Barnabas are now preaching and a now feeling threatened Jewish establishment. But Paul and Barnabas overcome this resistance, right? Well, no, they actually don't. They're run out of town in verses 50 and 51 which makes what happens next all the more interesting. Look what Luke tells us in Luke, in verse 52. It says, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Apparently, the disciples' joy in Jesus is in no way connected to the political success of the Christian movement in their city at this time. Continuing along. Verse 14, now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up 
the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained there for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Laconia. I'm sorry, I've said that a bunch of times, and the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Coffee break number four. So there's a little bit of lather, rinse, repeat here, right? Same kind of thing happening, except we are now featuring Gentiles in the opposition group. Did you notice that? Also, the word apostle appears, which may have caught you off guard. It's applied to both Paul and Barnabas. And that word simply means sent ones. So you could read verse 4, some sided with the Jews and some sided with the sent ones, which is Paul and Barnabas. Also here, you see that Paul and Barnabas respond to the danger in this part of the story by leaving. They don't seek their own martyrdom, and they choose rather to escape. Continuing on. Now at Lystra, there was a man who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. So he listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking, like some of you almost did. And when the crowd saw that Paul had done, he lifted up their voices, saying in Lacaunian, wow, Lacaunian, language learning, uh, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas, they called Zeus, and Paul, Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gate and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out to the crowd crying out, men, why are you doing these things? We are all, also are men of like nature with you and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without a witness for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. Notice what happens next. This is one verse away. The crowd is trying to worship Paul and Barnabas. Verse 19, but Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, having persuaded the crowds. They stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Coffee break number five, last one. So what does Paul do after being stoned? Thought dead, 
isn't dead. Well, he gets up and he continues to preach the very gospel that provoked his attack. And what do Paul and Barnabas do on the way back home as they retrace their steps? Well, they appoint elders in the cities where they had done their evangelism. So we could see the importance of church leadership here. We could see that you know, missions implies church planting. But I, I want us to see something else. Imagine that you're in one of these cities and Paul comes by with Barnabas and they want to appoint you to be an elder. Remember that Paul has just been stoned. They know it isn't safe to preach this gospel to the Jews. Evidently, it's not safe to preach this gospel to the Gentiles. These original church elders in Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, Pisidia, they know what they are signing up for when they accepted these appointments. The last final verses. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained there, and they remained no little time with the disciples. Well, that's our story. Five observations in the text. Number one, notice again, if you hadn't before, that this first missionary journey is not initiated by people. It's initiated by the Holy Spirit. I think this is significant because I think it, it reveals something about the heart of our God. You know, the, the gospel eventually reached us in this room. And I think it's, it's good news, the gospel. It's also good news that this just wasn't some idea of two guys in an ancient church somewhere. For us to receive the gospel is actually on the heart of God. This journey, which uses people to take the gospel to the Gentiles, is initiated by the Holy Spirit. But I also think this is significant for what we're meant to expect for the future. I had a, I had a missionary professor, a missionary professor in, in seminary, and um, at that time, I was hoping to plant churches in the United States. And I asked him, um, might have sounded rude now that I reflect on it, but I asked him, since he spent 20 years on the field himself, but I asked him, so let's say I have a church, um, and it's in a city somewhere, and we have a thriving local urban ministry. Maybe we have soup kitchens. Maybe we do other things. People are coming to faith. Um, it's a healthy church. We have no international missions at all. Are we good? And what he said next was really helpful to me. He said, you know, the nations are actually on the heart of God. And you should anticipate that what is on the heart of God will at some point be on the hearts of your people and make room for that. Well, that was helpful direction. I think it's also an encouraging reminder that the making of missionaries is still the work of the Spirit of God. 
and is always of grace and isn't initiated by us. We might find statements from today's and yesterday's missionaries that sound a little bit intimidating, like maybe like the one we opened up with, talking about being eaten by cannibals. But, but don't forget that it is beholding the face of Christ by the spirit of Christ that these faithful men and women willingly lay down their lives for the glory of Christ among the nations. Observation number two. The church in Antioch connects itself to this work that Paul and Barnabas are sent on. So I don't know where he first said it, but John Piper is pretty famous for saying that when it comes to missions and missionaries, there are, maybe you know this, goers, there are senders, and there are disobedient, right? And everybody in the crowd says, well, I don't want to be disobedient, so let's go back to those other two, right? And he does this talk from there. Well, we definitely see a sending church here, right? And we, we also see two people who are going in our story. But you know what? I think there is a sense in which we see the Christian church in Antioch as both the sender and the goer. So let, let me explain by going back to Deuteronomy 34.9. No, I'm not going to read you long chapters from the Old Testament now. But in that verse, you'll see that Moses has put his hand on Joshua. And by this act, he is putting part of his authority on Joshua so that the people of Israel will follow Joshua. Numbers 8, verses 10 through 11. The leaders of Israel put their hands on the Levites, symbolizing that they are representing all of Israel and their service before the Lord. Acts, now we're in our book, 6, 6. Well, the apostles pray for and lay their hands on the first seven deacons, extending the service capacity of the church leadership. Well, here now we're in 13, verse 3. And it says, after the Spirit has told them to set apart Paul and Barnabas, then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. I don't know how much to make of that. But I think if we're to include the rest of Scripture in understanding what this laying out of hands meant to them, I think there's kind of a proxy mentality going on here. Your gospel is our gospel. Your obedience to the Spirit is our obedience to the Spirit. Your gospel witness is our gospel witness. And your labors are now an extension of our labors in obedience to the Lord by sending you out. It's inferred. Not explicit, but I think significant. Observation number three. Rejection, danger, even intense suffering are not indications God is not in a work. Rejection, danger, even intense suffering, these are not indications that God is not in a work. The prevailing notion of this time was that if you are connected to a powerful God, then you will prosper. Now, if you don't prosper, well, either your God isn't powerful or you're not as connected to him as you thought you were. Maybe both. But all this changes with the death of Christ, doesn't it? 
the Christ can suffer. And so can we. And it brings glory to God. In fact, when we suffer for Christ, we rejoice all the more, not in our strength, but in the worthiness of our Lord and in our confidence in him. And so we see the disciples full of joy and the Holy Spirit when Paul and Barnabas are kicked out of town. We also see that Paul can strengthen and encourage the disciples of Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, Pisidia in chapter 14, verse 22, saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. We aren't doing it wrong here. This is, this is all according to God's plan. Observation number four. And the final one. The punchline of this story is that it's all about God. Did you notice that at the end? I think sometimes we say that about Bible concepts and verses and theology, and we think, yeah, it's all about God. But they're actually saying that at the end of their trip in the Bible, after this long trip, probably took a year to a year and a half, some people estimate. And their trip in these verses, verses 26 and 27, it's about God. And they sailed to Antioch, where they had been, what? Commended to the grace of God. This trip has been done by the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, what did they declare? They declared all that God had done with them. God had done it. And how he, not them, not they, had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Who should be a missionary? Doesn't that ring hollow to you right now? I mean, it's not, it's not a wrong question, but it, it seems like it immediately locates our thinking in the wrong place. You're like, dude, you asked the question. You started your sermon with that question. It's not our fault. I'm taking it back, all right? Because I, I think there's a better question that we can ask. Who is worthy of all of our worship and all of our praise? That's easier to answer, isn't it? But the answer has much bigger consequences. Who is worthy of all of our worship and all of our praise? It's the Lord Jesus our Redeemer, and our King. It's only by the grace of the Lord Jesus that any of us are what we are. That was true for John Payton. That was true for Paul and Barnabas. And that is true for all of us, both what we are now and what God is making us to be. So I'd like to give a final closing encouragement. Worship the Lord. That's where our text begins, doesn't it? Christians worshiping the Lord together. And that's really where our text ends. Christians recounting the stories of God's grace. You know, I think there are, there are two lies that we can tell ourselves. One is that we somehow are part of sustaining the work of God. We work towards it, we strategize for it, we complete it, we sacrifice for it, labor, toil, suffer, until 
though we would never say this out loud, we see our God as a needy God. Our God is not a needy God. We do not sustain him. Listen to Isaiah 42, starting at verse 6. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison who, from the prison who sit in darkness, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. He will do it. And nobody will be worshiping you or me when he does. A plan that includes us is not a plan that depends on us. We serve a big God that is worthy of all our worship. He will bring all that he has promised to pass. We do not serve a needy God and we lie to ourselves when we think so. The second way I think we lie to ourselves is that we look for fulfillment in the service of God. We might call it many things. We might call it investing in eternal things. But at the end of the day, it ends up really just being discontentment with or a misunderstanding of the gospel that we have already received. The reality is God calls us to serve him out of his fullness. And as people who have been made full by his grace, the one lie is that we serve a needy God. The other lie is that God has left us a needy us. That God, that isn't true, sends us out into the world half empty. And we have to fill our own hearts up, up with service for him. But that just isn't so. Not in this story. We see here that Paul and Barnabas are worshiping the Lord with their brothers when the Spirit taps them on the shoulders and selects them to be sent out. And their report back to the church after this journey, nothing was lacking God did his work with us. We do not serve a needy God. And because this is true, neither are we needy. Our God is that powerful. And we are all connected to him just in the way that the Lord says we are. And in that light, there are no great missionaries. Only a great God who is worthy of all our worship. Let's pray. God, you are worthy of all of our worship. May your word find its target in our hearts. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for saving us. We are yours, and that is a great thing to be. In Christ's name, amen.